Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of Naked Reflections. I'd like to begin with a quote from one of my heroes, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., The ultimate measure of a person is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Dr. King was one of the most eloquent public figures of the last century, but as he implies, most of us can be eloquent in a comfortable situation. What matters is being eloquent when the chips are down. And what about the dangers of eloquence? It can be used to mislead and falsify. The best defence against that is a good dose of scientific scepticism, but that too can be abused. Here's a clip from the Naked Scientist show, Naked at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the speaker, David Willits, was the UK Minister for Science at the time. I think the problem with the climate change deniers is that they've taken one of the tools of science, which is scepticism, And taking it to such an extreme, it's become a new form of kind of irrationality. And I think where science has to get it right is is how much how sceptical you can be. And it comes to point where you say, if you're being asked to believe that almost all major Western scientists and researchers working in this discipline are engaged in a kind of organised conspiracy, at that point, calling it scepticism doesn't capture the, the the sort of irrationality of it. We've called this show "Talking the Talk," and with me to talk the talk, I'm delighted to welcome two eloquent people, Dr. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, and the consultant virologist, Dr. Chris Smith, founder presenter of our sister, maybe our mother, Chris, a Naked Scientist podcast, also celebrating a birthday, this time 20 years old. Well, you started with a quote, so I'm going to go right back at you, Ed. I love Niels Bohr, who is one of the forefathers of quantum mechanics. And what he said was prediction is always terribly hard, especially when it concerns the future. But who would have predicted here we would all be at your 100th birthday and with a pandemic behind us or sort of underneath us at the same time? Well, mutual birthday greetings there, Chris. So the first question is going to be for you as my birthday gift. If scientific scepticism is the best tool against irrationality, how should we deal with the bogus scepticism that's bred on the Internet? 
When we first went into the pandemic, I interviewed someone who's another friend of your program, and that was Freya Jeffcott. And we interviewed Freya because she had a long track record in dealing with outbreaks around the world of exotic things. And at the time, this was very much in that camp. And one of the most poignant things she said during that interview was, I think one of the biggest battles we're going to fight during the coronavirus pandemic is the battle against misinformation. And she was absolutely spot on. Because what have we seen? We've seen people telling us that 5G mobile phone masks cause coronavirus and COVID. We've seen people telling us, in fact, um, after I received my Pfizer vaccine, someone sent me the circuit diagram for the microchips that Bill Gates had now snuck into my body along with my vaccine. And it was interesting because I looked up the circuit diagram because I thought that looks a bit strange for a microchip. So I looked it up and actually it was a guitar wow pedal. So now I can say, honestly, I'm wowing people out for a different reason because I have electronic enhancement in my wow factor thanks to my Pfizer vaccine. But this kind of thing in the hands of people who have the ability to promulgate it in the face of people who don't have the ability to debunk it because they perhaps don't have access to the information, they don't have access to your podcast to listen to authorities like you get on. This is very dangerous. And the internet's been amazing. It's been a great leveler. It's brought education and pretty much the works of mankind to the hands of everyone everywhere. But it's also brought the most enormous megaphone into play for people who don't have the right message to propagate. And, and I think we find ourselves at this very difficult crossroads now where we want the power and the freedom and the spirit that the internet gives to us. We don't want those negative consequences. And it has been a serious one to try and grapple with. Rowan, Chris has depicted the problem. A solution? Well, I'd rather wish I had one. But I wonder what Chris would think of this, because it's occurred to me quite often in the last year or two that one of the problems is our general and much discussed social deficit of trust. We don't know who, who or what to trust. And the, part of the problem is that we've almost raised expectations of what scientific certainty looks like to such an extent that anybody who can raise even the slightest question about it seems to bring the whole edifice down. So we look to science to give lots of absolutely clear, completely incontrovertible answers. And science, as we've seen during the pandemic, has said, well, it looks like this, and we think probably this way. And we can't give you a cast-iron risk-free solution. If we're going to find a solution to what we're going to do next, understanding the situation, we have to trust people. We have to take some risks. We have to perhaps just let go of that fantasy of having some absolutely infallible solution that will tell us without any, any doubt what we ought to do. And I'm all for following the science. The problem is that in many people's ears, that sounds as if a very high promise is being made. And if anything at all seems to question it, people are very tempted to throw it all out. So I suspect what we need is two things. One is a dose of realism about what we can know absolutely certainly, and a dose of trust that allows us to take the risks we have to take in order to move things forward, rather than waiting around looking for the unthinkable, unimaginable, ideal solution. I think the other issue here is that science is not so much about answers. It's about questions. And it's about saying, this is what we don't know. We're going to form a hypothesis. And we think it might be this, and we're going to test it. And we ask the right question to move us a further stepping stone. And as 
my friend Lee Berger, who works in South Africa, he studies the evolution of humans. And he's he's discovered not one, not two, but three different species of early human ancestor. And and I said to him once, I, I kind of made the mistake of saying, oh, is this the missing link? And he said, look, if you've got a gap in your knowledge and you plonk a stone, a stepping stone between those two stepping stones that's in the middle of the gap, you've made one gap into two gaps. You've still got a gap. It's just, just two smaller ones. And I think people really should understand and appreciate and it's not their fault that they don't that science is an imprecise art we form hypotheses we move knowledge forward but we also don't have all the answers or we would all be out of a job and it's all about saying this is how we think the land lies this is what we think is the right way forward but we need to test that so we go on instinct we move with what we think is in the right direction armed with the right tools but we have to accept that sometimes we will get it wrong and that's what science is. It's like Edison said, you know, I haven't invented a way that works. I've discovered 10,000 ways that don't work in getting towards a light bulb that works. Exactly. And incidentally, I had the joy of meeting Lee Berger in South Africa some years ago and seeing some of the work at, at first hand. And it is... Did he show you Homo Naledi? Yes, absolutely wonderful. So exciting. Isn't it amazing? Because when you gaze on this and you think, well, that thing is hundreds of thousands of years old. But when you look at Australopithecus sediba and you've got these bones that are millions of years old, I found that incredibly humbling. But also the fact that it reveals to us that individual actually has some genetics overlapping with me. And that could well be one of my ancestors. And it, it kind of made me feel a little bit soft inside for a bit. Very, very moving, unexpectedly moving. But just picking up the, the point here, I, I think that what you've said is really crucial because it gives us a, a sort of narrative about what science is like. And what some people say these days is you can bombard people with lots of facts and lots of statistics, but if you don't have a narrative that's persuasive and compelling, you might as well save your breath. And part of what people need, I suspect, in scientific education is a narrative of how science actually operates. i tell you what, though, Rowan. I, for the first time, am being approached by listeners who are saying, have you got a reference for that? Now, for years, when I've been going on the radio and saying to people, this is a paper out in the journal of, and I always make sure I give the reference and who's doing the work and where they're doing it. And I've always done that, trying to make it clear to people what my sources were. And very rarely people would say, thanks for that. But this time, the one thing I've really noticed about the pandemic, and I think probably because the science has been so high in the mix, is that people, I think, have become much better at actually saying, I, I really would like to see the data. Where are you getting this information from? And I'm really pleased. I, th I think there has been a healthy injection of scepticism in the right direction from people who are saying, right, let's see the sources, let people understand for the first time the difference between a peer-reviewed academic publication and a preprint for example and i'm seeing people rebut things on social media now saying but hang on a minute that's just a preprint and they've also become quite familiar with the idea that journals have published things and then had to retract them because new information has come to light and i, I think this is actually a very healthy direction of travel because people have i think become quite, quite a lot more familiar not just with statistics but also how the scientific method and the publication of scientific and, and propagation of scientific information works what you're saying is that we need a kind of literacy to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. But one of the aspects I, I kind of want to explore is how eloquence interferes with that. Because if you are a persuasive person, and you both are, but whether you're a scientist or a theologian, there are great dangers because you know people are going to listen. 
but that gift is so easily misused. I agree with that, and and I agree with that in two levels. Number one, if you've got somebody who's a really good speaker and really clear communicator, then obviously they are likely to win more friends and influence more people than someone who might be a genius but can't get their point across. But there's another aspect to this. We were talking about scepticism. We were talking about uh, dodgy misinformation in the pandemic. Well, let's look at some of these algorithms running on social media, which are a classic example of this. How do they work? Well, what they do, and the reason they're so successful, things like Twitter are, is because when you go on there, everything you write and everything you type is analysed and data are extracted, which are used to build a profile of who Ed Kessler and the Wolf Institute, at Wolf Institute, if you'd like to follow, is. And it goes and finds other people who tend to say, think, and follow the same stuff. So unsurprisingly, when you say stuff, it then introduces you to other people you might like to follow. So unsurprisingly, you get an echo chamber effect, and it's self-reinforcing. And so you then become more confident in what you're saying So even if you weren't that confident in your message before, because it finds you an audience who all agree with you, whether you're right or not, it makes that confidence reinforced. And and the cost of that, I suppose, is that you stop thinking as you ought about how you speak to the people who are not convinced, how you speak to the people who don't share the same language precisely, how you persuade people. I've sometimes thought that one of the real difficulties in our culture at the moment is that we've forgotten a lot of the art of debating and persuading, because we are brandishing our standards at one another. But the question of eloquence goes right back to the very beginnings of Western philosophy, doesn't it? You already have in Plato a very sophisticated discussion of the kind of argument whose purpose is solely to win an argument. It's not actually to persuade some of the truth. It's to reinforce your position and reinforce your control in some ways. And Plato says, how, you know, how do we have a picture of the world that doesn't leave us at the mercy of the most successful operator around. And that's not exactly an academic question these days when we look at how contemporary politics works and how contemporary politics slithers towards what people call the infotainment industry, the mixture of purported information and entertainment value. So eloquence is is a double-edged thing, and I suspect that's also why in some religious traditions, in some bits of Christianity, there's a quite conscious policy of saying, look, don't try to be clever when you talk. There's something that the medievals called the sermo humilis, literally the, the humble style of speech, but more accurately, I suppose, the unadorned. Don't over-egg it. Don't make it about you. Make it about what you're talking about. And in some ways, that goes against the human condition, Rowan. That's not an easy task, is it? It's not easy, no. And and it can become yet another technique, of course. That's the, the irony. But I think you raised the interesting question of how we think about rhetoric and eloquence as positive things, not just negative. And I think they are positive to the degree that they look not to the, the status, the power, the leverage of the speaker, but to creating the possibilities for effective action and understanding that's shared with others. How would you discuss the more controversial topics in in your respective areas? Chris, you know, GM Foods, for example, or Rowan uh, in the church issues of sexuality and faith. It's a very difficult one because the conversations aren't ever just about intellectual positions. They're about 
senses of identity, they're about emotional investments, they're about fears, they're about aspirations. And so it depends quite a lot what sort of relationship you're prepared to build with another person. Sometimes it's a matter of trying to find the things that you can actually recognize in one another. So much at the moment of the uh, the echo chamber world, the, the rhetoric of online discussion tends to assume, as I've sometimes put it, that the other side is not just wrong, but wicked. And you know, you can have nothing morally in common with them. And their motivations must be murky and sinister. And it helps sometimes in a conversation, if you can have a proper conversation, to start by saying, so, you know, positively, what do you care about? Because it may be that positively, we care about some of the same things, and that our disagreement is less about fundamental values than about how to get there. And we may still not agree, we may still disagree pretty sharply, but there's just something that allows a glimmer of recognition in each other's eyes. I learned a lot of stuff when I went to medical school, but I think I learned my most important lesson on my first day there. And it was actually a joke, the lecture that they gave us. And there were two or three hundred terrified 18-year-old medical and dental students sitting in this lecture theatre. And this lecture started, and it was really fierce. And they were hoiking people out of the audience and humiliating them and asking them really hard questions. And the words, there were these 15-syllable long expressions and words for all this stuff going on. And I looked around the room thinking, is this just me or is everyone in here terrified? And so I took some solace from the fact that everyone looked equally terrified. Everyone was ashen-faced, sweating, clammy, looked like everyone was about to have a heart attack, actually. And this got worse and worse and worse. And to the point where I was thinking, I don't think I can survive six years of this. I think I have to leave on day one of university. And at the point I was just about to stand up and walk out and just to say, that's my university career down the tubes. This slide went up and it said, you've been wheezed. Welcome to the London Hospital Medical College. And all these people who were dressed as posh looking doctors at the front were just fifth year students. But they stood up and one of them said, now, guys, in the next five or six years, you're with us. You're going to learn thousands of new words. And they are the kinds of words we've been using in front of you. And if you use those words in front of patients the way we've used them in front of you, they are going to feel like you do now. And it was the most poignant and important thing I think I ever learned. Uh, you know, lots of facts and figures and that kind of thing. But that told me an enormous amount about actually the impact and the power of language and words and frightened people and how words have the power to frighten but also soothe and and so I've taken that story and that experience with me, and I'm sure that one of the reasons why I do an enormous amount in the communication space is because of the enormous galvanizing effect that that had on me that day back in 1993. That's a brilliant story, I think, because it, it focuses on, on the way in which you act as a doctor, as a clinician, in awareness of how you're being heard. There's a kind of basic solidarity, a basic sympathy that, that's created there. You're aware of the emotional force and impact of what you say, even if what you're talking about isn't in itself emotionally charged. It's a really important bit of learning, isn't it? This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests for this special edition are Rowan Williams and Chris Smith. On a previous episode, Reflecting on Communication, I asked Ed Williams to nominate someone whose eloquence had changed the world. So the first actually is 
a Renaissance mathematician, Copernicus. Now, Copernicus changed the way people think about the world, <laughs> fundamentally. It took quite a lot of time <laughs> for his theory to get through. But it wouldn't today in the world of mass media. I think people will galvanise around what Copernicus was saying about the Earth's place in the solar system and the universe a lot quicker maybe than they did. Copernicus seems to have proposed his revolutionary view of the solar system without falling foul of the Roman Catholic Church. But when Galileo reiterated Copernicus's observations about 80 years later, he famously got into hot water. Explained perhaps as Copernicus being more eloquent than Galileo. Which leads me to ask, when does eloquence become dangerous? And who is threatened as a result? Eloquence is really dangerous when it becomes obviously a tool of control. And all that we've said so far, I think, underlines the ways in which the use of language is shot through, whether we like it or not, with power. I guess that in the Copernicus-Galileo story, one of the, the undercurrents was, of course, the, the sheer personal and political complexity of Galileo's situation. He was close, personally close, to the Pope. He was somebody who, I think, valued a certain kind of personal as well as professional independence, but for that very reason, his, his writing, which is partly um, working off some scores against intellectual opponents, has a bit of an agenda that's not just intellectual, and that made him enemies in the papal court, and so it goes on. You know, Galileo's failure in eloquence, if you like, is partly the intrusion of a number of, as I say, personal and political factors, which make it not so much about the issues as about him. And the eloquence that is most risky is where it is fundamentally about somebody foreclosing. And if you have, and I guess Chris will recognise something, this, if you have, through no virtue of your own, some, some capacity to speak effectively in public, you will know the moments at which it's very tempting, as it were, to cheat. You know you can get away with it. It'll sound good. Whatever you say is going to sound good in this context of these people. And you can, you can win a short-term argument that way. What you can't do is solve a long-term problem that way. And so anyone aware of having some skills with language really has to have a, a very ruthless inner monitor saying, now just a minute, what corners are you cutting here and why? Is this about winning the short-term argument? Is it about solving the long-term problem or building the long-term relationship? And that internal scepticism about eloquence becomes really important there. Politicians, of course, tend to be short-term rather than long-term in their thinking. And I wonder, and this is really for Chris, what we are to make of the political rhetoric, such as we follow the science. This is constantly used, isn't it, to explain why some policy or other is being implemented. I have to question it along the lines of Rowan just now. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, that phrase really came to prominence during the pandemic. And cynics have said, is this political arse covering, excuse my French. It was almost though the government are thinking, well, we don't actually know what 
the right thing to do is. So what we're going to do is we're going to say we're following the science and then we can blame the scientists. And actually, a lot of scientists got concerned about this and they said, well, hang on a minute, because, you know, you keep you keep saying you're following science and this is what the science is saying. That's not what all scientists are saying and it's not what everyone agrees. And there was an enormous kind of decision making by committee going on. Lots of people were making one decision, lots of people making another decision. There's no clear consensus. So as a result, they sort of tried to do a bit of everything or a bit of nothing. And we saw this repeat itself over the summer because many countries were out of the blocks vaccinating everybody all and sundry, left, right and centre, including young people as fast as they could. In the UK, our decision making sat there for actually a couple of months. And eventually the decision was they're not going to make a decision from the JCVI. They're going to ask our chief medical officers to make a decision about whether we should vaccinate young people. That means that the opportunity to do that and to get young people vaccinated over the summer holiday was missed. And now we're back in term time. Where are all the cases in young people? They're now having a third academic year disrupted and they're losing education. And so on the one hand, you need, I think, powerful, potent people who can stand up and say with some leadership, no, I'm going to see it this way and take people with them. On the other hand, there is a danger if they're the wrong sort of person and it's the wrong decision, then a lot of people get it wrong very, very quickly. In some respects, Sajid Javid has stood up recently and said, no jab, no job. And actually, people have saluted him for being forthright. It sounds like he's being callous. It sounds like he's being a bit heartless, saying if you haven't got COVID vaccinated, you can't come and care for my mother-in-law. But on the other hand, a lot of people are thinking it. And I think that's what is missing in the modern era. We're so desperate to cover our backsides and hide behind rhetoric like we're following the science that actually we're looking always for someone to blame rather than take some personal responsibility, but also as a population, be prepared to accept that people do get it wrong sometimes, accept that mistakes happen, accept that we don't know everything and be more receptive to an update in information, a change in status, and therefore a change in direction. This inability to accept sorry and this reluctance to give an apology, that tells us a lot about where we are right now in society, Rowan. It does, unfortunately, yes. It, it tells us that we create impossible expectations and then really belabor people who disappoint those expectations. And that's, that's not a healthy place to be. It's the way we treat celebrities. It's increasingly the way we treat politicians and other public figures. And as Chris has said, that's also the way into scapegoating groups who can carry the blame for the risks we got wrong. Adulthood, I think, is all about saying, well, yes, I thought as carefully as I could. I did the best I could and I got it wrong, just like you and just like everybody else. So don't instantly assume that it's a result of absolute incompetence or total dishonesty. We get things wrong. That's human. And that kind of shared sense of the human responsibility both to take risks and to support one another when those risks go south, that's so crucial, I think, to a, a really well-working society and culture. And we're not particularly good at it at present. I get things wrong is not something that's easy to say. And our society, Chris, doesn't seem to like it very much. I think the problem with the present situation is that the pandemic is a very political thing. And we seem to have created this toxic culture in politics where any kind of admission of an error or any change of direction is now a dubbed a U-turn. And that is political suicide. So therefore, no one wants to do it. Now, you all have noticed that we're vaccinating children. They have only said 
the first dose will be given. They have not said whether they're going to give any second dose, which has led to confusion. Why do that? Well, the answer is if they said we'll follow this with a vaccine in 12 weeks time, but then some more facts come to light in the meantime that actually says we should better deploy these vaccines elsewhere. We should lengthen the vaccine period. We should shorten the vaccine period. Then they'll be attacked for saying you gave us one thing and then you said another. And I think that really we need to we need to have a better environment for healthy debate and discussion. And unfortunately, in the era when we have more information at our fingertips and the ability to educate ourselves better than ever, we are very busy shutting down debate. And this goes back to really where we started. And I think freedom of speech has been very dangerously eroded. And we ought to be very conscious of the fact that in order to make progress, we make progress by having an informed debate where people are entitled to put forward their opinions and they should be prepared to defend them. But we should certainly not be sending round people to smash down people's doorways and allowing that to happen, which is what is increasingly happening. When people don't agree, they should healthily disagree. And out of that disagreement, we distill what is the right direction of travel, not have a situation where people think one thing but dare not say anything because they know, like JK Rowling, they're going to get killed on Twitter five minutes later and cancelled. And that makes, to my mind, a much less healthy, a much less open, a much less transparent society in the same way that since the Freedom of Information Act and the GDPR came in, people don't send people emails about matey down the corridor who's a bit of a nuisance and we probably should get rid of them. Now what they do is pick up the telephone and say matey down the corridor is a real pain in the arse. I'm not putting this in writing though because it might be GDPR'd. So uh, should we just get rid of them? So what it's done is to push something which would have been out in the open, more open for discussion, perhaps for changing your mind, into an underground, off-the-grid type communication. And, and I think that's unhealthy. I really agree with that. I think the question of accountability is not best served by this, this culture that you've just described. But the way I've, I've sometimes put it recently is that we have an education system that doesn't actually help us learn about how we learn. Part of what we're talking about is admitting that we've learned, isn't it? I said stupid things when I was 18. I've learned. You've said stupid things when you were 18. You've learned. We've moved on, and it's important to understand how and why, looking at the things that have persuaded us, the things that have changed our minds, and being able to reflect on that process of our minds expanding and growing. But the more we have an educational climate, and I think we do in all sorts of ways, which simply treats education as pouring the contents of one jug into another, or acquiring a set of tightly measurable skills, the more we forget that education needs to look at itself. How do we learn? How do we learn to learn better and learn more? And a bit more self-reflection in that educational context would, I think, do us a world of good. As we're drawing to a close, I, I'd like you to give an example to the Naked Reflections listeners of a speech that's bold, that's eloquent, whether it's ancient or modern, that speaks truth to power or has resulted in fundamental change. It's a very predictable one, I'm afraid, and you've already touched on it in a way, but I always think here of Martin Luther King. I think of the way in which, as a public speaker, he managed to galvanise literally millions of people, waking them up to the possibility of change, and he did it. Certainly not by any kind of self-advertisement. He did it by drawing on the deep traditions and the deep values of what were apparently very diverse communities. He drew on the tradition of American independence. He drew on the rhetoric, if you like, that 
fueled the whole American expansion, North American expansion in the 19th century, the early 20th century. And at the same time, he drew on the protest and lament of the enslaved populations of the Old South with its deeply Christian undercurrent. And he managed to hold those together, to fuse those together. And that's a, a really extraordinary achievement. And I think part of his iconic status, part of his success as a public figure for all the flaws and problems of his private life, for all the unfinishedness of his legacy, he's important because he managed to hold those, those narratives together, the narrative of a North American commitment to, to liberty, the Christian narrative, I should say the Jewish and Christian narrative of liberation for all as a promise, the honoring of a memory of suffering and enslavement, and fusing that into a, a really credible moral vision for a, a society. We begin and we end with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Rowan Williams and Chris Smith, and thank you for joining us for our 100th episode. And if you've been with us on the journey, thanks very much indeed. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? They're all available for your listening pleasure. You may also want to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week for our 101st show. 